Esther chapter 8. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, if he is pleased with me, then let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews and all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now, write another decree in the, in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Savan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy kill and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. 
and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Thus ends our reading of God's inerrant word. May all who hear it find assurance in its good news. June 6, 1944, D-Day. U.S. armed forces stormed the beaches of Normandy. America had entered World War II, making victory for the Allied forces inevitable. In less than one year's time, on May, on May 8, 1945, victory was declared in Europe. We refer to that latter day as VE Day. Now, while much happened between the, the Normandy invasion and VE Day, and many lives were lost, it was really on D Day that the outcome of this war was made certain. With the U.S. gaining a stronghold in Europe, it became clear how the war was going to go. A powerful ally had joined the fight, and the Nazis would not last. In our story today, we see something very similar. In the battle between God's people and their enemies, a mighty ally joined the fight. And the tide shifted so greatly that celebration ensued even before the battle began. But before we dive into the text, let's recall what had already taken place. Haman had been defeated. Ironically, he was executed on the 75-foot-high stake that he had constructed for Mordecai. However, even, even though that that enemy was defeated, Haman's evil still lived on. The decree for the destruction of the Jews had not been overturned. But even so, Haman's death had set into motion a sequence of reversals. Dominoes were beginning to fall, the first of which we see in our first two verses. Look at verses 1 and 2. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Now, according to Persian law, whenever a traitor to the throne was discovered, the property of this defector would be confiscated by the king. And since Esther was the person who was wronged by Haman, his estate was handed over to her, which she then gifted to Mordecai. But in this passage, we also see something very significant taking place. The king took off his signet ring and presented it to Mordecai. In essence, he was giving to Mordecai the same position and authority that Haman once had. Possessing the signet ring of the king showed that the power and the authority of the king was behind him. And this is tremendously important as we 
shall soon see. Of course, property and power would do Mordecai no good if a year from now he would be dead. Haman may have been gone, but his decree was still the law of the land, and it was a threat to every Jew. So once again, we, we see Esther approaching the king for mercy. Look at verses 3 through 6. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks, thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Once more, we see Esther approaching the king without being summoned. For the king had to once again extend his gold scepter to her. She put her life in the hands of Xerxes for a second time on behalf of her people. The strength of Hadassah, that orphan Jew, was shining through. And such strength gave opportunity for the grace and mercy of the king to be on display once more. Xerxes loved his wife dearly, so he extended the scepter to her. And from Esther, we see this emotional plea for the salvation of her people. She fell at his feet, weeping and begging for the king to overturn the edict of Haman. She was coming to her husband as a Jew in distress. How can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? No more games. No more secrets. All the cards are laid out on the table. Yes, she was Esther, queen of Persia, but she was a Jew first. And as a Jew, she pleaded with her king for mercy. How would Xerxes respond? Verses 7 and 8. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name and behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. As if to reassure his wife, Xerxes reminded Esther of the justice he had already enacted upon her enemy. Yet he, he could not rescind any decree that had been sealed with his signet ring. 
To do so would have weakened his position, showing the king to be fallible. He would lose the trust and the fear of his people, allowing room for even greater turmoil to stir its ugly head. Yet Xerxes was no fool. He, he would not allow Haman's actions to, to overrule his own sovereignty, for, for he would also lose face if he allowed success to come from the man he had just executed. So he suggested to Esther that another decree in the king's name should be written and sealed with his signet ring, an edict that would counteract the previous. Now, a law of this sort takes time to write. This isn't something that can be formulated overnight. In fact, it would take Mordecai and Esther roughly two months to, to come up with this solution. Let's look at this new decree, verses 11 and 12. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Now the wording of this decree should sound familiar to you, Ben Al. It's, it's almost exactly like Haman's earlier edict. In fact, let's, let's take a look at that older order and compare. Look at Esther chapter 3, verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder your goods. Here we see that in order to reverse Haman's edict, the Jews had to be given the right to defend themselves in the exact same manner on the exact same day. Look at the table for comparison. What were the people given the right to do? Under both edicts, they could destroy, kill, and annihilate. And whom could they do this to? Under Haman's edict, the Jews were the ones at risk. And under Mordecai's, anyone who attacked the Jews were the ones at risk. And to what extent? Under both, even the women and children could be slaughtered. Now, there is dispute as to the wording of the Hebrew on this point, And in my opinion, I don't think the NIV has it exactly correct. The NIV makes it seem that the, the women and children mentioned in Mordecai's edict refer to the Jewish women and children. However, other translations reflect the notion that the, the women and children of those who would attack the Jews would be at risk of death as well. Being that this decree was written to be a reversal of fortune, I feel that the latter have it correct. The, the same fate that was given to the Jews under Haman's decree would be the same fate for the enemies of the Jews. 
what we are dealing here with is, is an edict that laid forth the terms for a holy war. In the holy war, wars of Israel's past, God would declare to his armies that, that none were to be left alive, not even the women and the children. It was God's way of rooting out the toxic plague of sin throughout the land. But I digress. Let's look back at our table. Here we see, again, under both decrees that, that the victor would reap the spoils of war. They could plunder the possessions of their opponents. And finally, we see that citizens would be given the right to carry out this battle on one day only, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. In other words, Xerxes had approved an order for a civil war to take place within Persia for one day only. There was a limit to the, to the destruction that Xerxes would allow. The, the point of this is, is that Mordecai's decree was a full reversal of Haman's decree. The danger that had been placed on the Jews had now been placed on the enemy of, enemies of the Jews, even their women and children. The tables had been turned. The same destruction that they were plotting had now been reversed. It had descended upon the heads of their foes. And just as the, the pike that was created for Mordecai was used to execute Haman, so now the words of Haman's decree had fallen back upon the enemies of the Jews. But someone might ask, why was this second decree even needed? I mean, wouldn't the Jews have defended themselves anyways? Most likely, yes. <coughs> But what a decree like this does is allow the Jews to prepare in advance. In the beginning of this new edict, it is stated that the Jews had the right to assemble. The Hebrew word for assemble is often used in Scripture when talking about mustering an army together. In other words, the, the Jews could now start gathering weapons and coordinating with one another and devising strategies without being accused of plotting a rebellion and suffering the consequences of being traitors. Again, someone might ask, but is this the ideal solution? Were there no better options than to save the Jews and to declare a holy war? Ideally, Haman wouldn't have issued the edict in the first place. A holy war was already declared. Remember, Esther wanted Xerxes to rescind the original edict. However, what had been sealed with the king's ring might as well have been written in stone. It was irrevocable. So this new decree was written up and sent throughout the whole empire. It was transcribed into all the languages so that everyone would know. This was good news for the Jews. And yet it was a bitter pill to the enemies of God's people. Look at verses 15 through 17. 
Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Again, the author vividly points out a number of reversals that have taken place. We see Mordecai no longer wearing sackcloth and ashes, but dressed in royal garments of blue and white and wearing a crown upon his head, draped in, in a linen robe of the regal color of purple. And the mood of the people have changed as well. When, when Haman's decree was pronounced in Susa, everyone was bewildered. They were beside themselves. And the Jews throughout the, the empire were mourning and fasting and weeping and wailing. But now, at the pronouncement of Mordecai's edict, the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. And for the Jews throughout the 127 provinces, it was a time of happiness and joy and gladness and honor. And as we'll see, many from other nationalities became Jews during this time. These converts, they saw the unexpected rise of Mordecai. They witnessed the deliverance of the Jews. To them, this was divine intervention. Yahweh had suddenly become real. And he was terrifying. Staying true to the, the motif of not mentioning God's name, the author states that the fear of the Jews had seized them. In his ever so subtle way of speaking, he's, what the author is really saying is that the fear of Yahweh had gripped them. And rightly so. In this chapter... We, we see how God worked his salvation for his people through the use of a number of reversals. It was by the authority of the king that, that rescue came, an edict that reversed all of Haman's evil work. And by giving Mordecai a Jew the power that had once belonged to Haman, a message was sent throughout the land. The king was on the side of Israel. And by allowing the Jews to assemble and to prepare for war, the tables had turned. The victory for the Israelites was inevitable. Just like D-Day, when the U.S. took the beach of Normandy, the outcome of this war became certain as well. Even though the battle had been scheduled for the 13th day of the 12th month, way in the future, 
the victor had already been determined. The great ally, King Xerxes, had put his support in favor of the Jews. And in this story, we also see an advocate putting her life in harm's way in order to rescue her people. Esther filled the role of that intermediary for her people. But the edict could not be overturned. Another way of salvation was was needed. Another decree had to be written. A decree that would reverse the situation. A decree that would bring joy and celebration to those who consider themselves God's people. Good news that would turn the hearts of men towards the one true God. Brothers, sisters, is this not your story as well? Step back for a moment and take a look at the bigger picture. You have an enemy who, that schemed and plotted against you. It was in the garden that the serpent tempted and lied, convincing Adam and Eve to sin. Since that day, God's decree, his curse, has been upon you. Death hovers above you, awaiting for your last breath. The judgment of God is immovable. God cannot rescind that edict, for his laws cannot be revoked. That old covenant, it, it lingers about, always pressing upon you with the guilt of your sin. Yet you have an advocate who is on your side, and a new decree has been written. Jesus has come to rescue his people. He took upon himself the punishment for your sins. The edict of death was placed upon him as he went to die for sinners, to die for you. Yet three days later, he rose from the dead. He defeated his enemy, Satan. And now, God's irrevocable decree of destruction for all sinners has been countered by this new decree, this new covenant, that all who repent and believe in his Son should not perish but have everlasting life. For those who turn from their sin and trust in him, they have experienced the assurance of salvation. Is the war over? No. But the outcome is known. Jesus, the great ally, has joined the fight, and he does not lose. Listen to what God's word has to say. Hebrews 2, verse 8. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, 
we do not see everything subject to him. Dear friends, when, when you look at, at your world, it is difficult to see the vi that victory has been won at Calvary. Sin still abounds, and the earth is not as it should be. The war continues, but the outcome is certain. All creation has been brought under the dominion of Christ. Though we don't see it yet, we know it to be true by faith. By going to the cross, Jesus has written a second decree. A decree that reverses the first one. A decree that draws the hearts of men to himself. Trust in him. Repent of your sins and look to the cross. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the, the good news of your new covenant. Jesus did pay the penalty for our sins when he was nailed to that cross. The law brought about death and destruction Christ reverses that judgment upon us. With him as our ally, we are guaranteed that final victory. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit as we prepare for the war that awaits us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.